You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is John Hall. Uh, I am one of the elders here at Citizens Church. And so before we jump into God's word together today, I wanted to share an update with you on behalf of the elders at Citizens Church. The last time I stood before you in July, I told you that the elders were going to have a meeting to specifically cast vision for and discuss how the Lord is leading us as a body to engage in his mission to reach the lost around us and around the world. We know from scripture that we are called as believers in Christ to actively share the hope we have with those around us and to seek to take the gospel wherever it is not known, whether that be across the street or across the world. We have the why question answered for us. But we felt it would be necessary for us to specifically answer the who, what, and how for Citizens Church. So we had our meeting in late August. All the elders prayed and fasted together, met to discuss these things, and I simply want to provide an update for what came out of that meeting. What became clear very early in the discussion is that every single man in that room has a deep desire to see Citizens Church engage the lost world and do that well. It was quickly obvious that there is a deep desire to see Jesus known amongst our neighborhoods, our city, our state, our nation, and around the world where he is not known. There is a deep desire to see this place, all of you, oriented around a way of living in obedience and compassion that pursues people that don't know the Lord and who may have never heard the name of Jesus. So we began to discuss what that may look like for us as a church. There were a lot of ideas thrown around. But I want to share some of the conclusions we came to. We want you to know where we feel the Lord is leading us as a church and how we specifically engage the lost world. This is not necessarily an exhaustive list, but here are the key conclusions that we came to. First and foremost, we're asking the Lord to foster an awe for the gospel in us that compels us to share the beautiful mercy of Jesus. We don't want to be compelled by guilt or duty or habit or any other thing than true wonder and amazement and thankfulness for God's mercy to us that we are compelled to overflow that message to those who don't know it. Next, we pray that this would be an identity trait for us as a church. We pray that eventually we will get to a place where this is something our people are marked by. We pray that each person in our church would understand that they can be a minister of the gospel, whether they find that wherever they find themselves. We don't want missions or mobilization to be a ministry people are sent to when they ask to get involved, but rather for it to be a banner that sits over everything that we do. And that's one of the reasons, one of the key components of our mission statement calls out disciple making. Citizens of heaven enjoy God, they love people, and they make disciples. Eventually, this identity trait will be observable in everything we do from teaching and preaching, in our ministries, in the resources we produce, and in every corner of our church. We want the Lord to saturate this place with a burning passion to see him exalted as people are, rest- are restored amongst every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we want that to be evident in everything that we do. Third, we want to be involved in local, regional, and global mobilization efforts. We believe the Lord has placed us here to engage the neighborhoods and cities where we are. We desire to see men, women, and families raised up and planted even beyond our neighborhoods and cities. Maybe that's in another city or another state and perhaps in another country and context. And we want to work towards creating opportunities and on-ramps for you to be equipped and mobilized to engage those around you. 
And we pray that some of you would be called out amongst us to go to plant other churches and or engage with people that would be considered unreached by the gospel and have no access to it unless it is brought to them. The mentality is not one of gather and keep, but rather equip and send out, as one of our elders, Kevin Evans, put it during our meeting. Mobilization, both locally and globally, is a priority to us, and we want to see this carried out by people being sent into their neighborhoods, workplaces, families, social circles, as well as planting churches and missionaries around our city, state, country, and around the world. Fourth, we want to recognize our own limitations and resist the foolish temptation to believe that we can do it all, that our way is the best way. We want to foster key partnerships and relationships to aid us in these efforts. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. There are a number of excellent organizations and partners that we can leverage to enhance the effectiveness of our small efforts. We would also like to hire someone relatively soon that we can set loose to build and to dream with us in these areas. In fact, this coming week, the mobilization minister's position will be posted online and God willing in the near future, that position will be filled. So please be in prayer that we find the right person for that role. But just to be clear, we want to spend resources, time, and effort to be as effective as we can be with what God has given us, and we believe that will mean partnering with others in various capacities. And finally, and this is one of the areas that is most beautiful, is that we want to create space, clarity, and support for efforts that all of you are already doing. We started to compile the list of mobilization efforts that were already happening in our church. It was amazing to be reminded that there are literally dozens and dozens of ways that all of you are already loving and engaging the lost with the gospel. In no way do we want to stop or stifle any of those things. We want to encourage them and see them flourish. We also want to define areas of focus where we can work together on efforts where we feel as though we can be really effective and attentive to the opportunities the Lord puts before us. To be clear, we want to create clear and defined paths for you to engage in this work. I know there's a lot there to digest. I'm sure you feel that, know that we feel that as well. But this is where we want to go as a church. We won't get there next month, maybe not even in the next year or two, but Lord willing, we are praying that he would create these things in us and all for his gospel of mercy, a heart for those that are far from him, and a fervent desire to see his name proclaimed amongst all peoples. So please pray with us in this. Thank you for your patience with us. We have put ourselves before him asking, what would you have us to do, Lord? We don't have all the answers, but we trust that he will lead us where he wants to take us. We want to go wherever he wants us to go. And so that is the update from the elders to you, our church family. And so at this time, I'm going to switch gears, okay? So I'm going to put on a different hat. We're going to go right into the sermon. And as uh, the intro just revealed, we're in a sermon series covering the Sermon on the Mount called As It Is, meaning that the kingdom citizenship is grounded in living on earth as it is in heaven. And to date, we've been taking a look at the first section of this sermon known as the Beatitudes. So in looking at the Beatitudes, we've discovered that the life of following Jesus is one that is not what the world would consider normal. And at first glance, everything seems to be backwards or better yet, put upside down, right? So it is the poor in spirit that have access to the kingdom of God. It is the mourning. Those that mourn, they are the ones that are comforted. It's the meek that end up inheriting the earth. It's the hungry and thirsty. They are the ones that end up ultimately 
being satisfied and so on and so forth. And so this brings us to today's passage. The beatitude that states that those who are persecuted for righteousness sake are blessed or flourishing. And immediately as I say that, the reaction to the statement has to be one of shock. Here's why. Consider this situation for a moment. I want to paint a picture for you right now. This is fictional. I've completely made this up. But it happens somewhere in the world every day. A believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. It could be a man. It could be a woman. It could be in any number of locations around the world. They are surrounded by a crowd of people. And this is not just any crowd. This is a crowd that is angry, that is violent toward them. This person, our brother or sister in Christ, has broken no law, has done no other person any harm, holds no ill will towards any person in that crowd, and yet they're being harassed, insulted, pushed, spit upon, humiliated, and completely disrespected. And why is this happening? For no other reason than they are a follower of Jesus Christ. Eventually, things turn violent where the crowd unleashes its anger on this individual. And maybe it ends with just a few minor injuries, or maybe it ends with the loss of a life. But as you watch this unfold, in this moment, would you consider this individual blessed or flourishing? Would you consider that moment something to rejoice over and to be glad? And yet Jesus is crystal clear To be persecuted on his account for the sake of righteousness is a blessing. It is a sign of kingdom flourishing. And could anything be more upside down than this? I'm so grateful on one hand that we live in a country where this is not the norm. It's a good and true statement to say that God's hand has been upon this country. That he has blessed this country in numerous ways. Yet I'm afraid that in matters like persecution, we're so busy being Americans, that we miss the point. That we forget that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that will see no end because we serve the king of all kings who reigns eternally. So we must press into the text and the idea of persecution to understand the blessing and the flourishing in it. By the way, on the other hand, those who live in other countries who are constantly being persecuted have something that they would like to ask of us in America. Stop praying that persecution would end for them. They see persecution as a means of help in both purifying the church and advancing the gospel in their respective countries. In fact, they have begun to pray that persecution would make its way to America. So think on that for a moment. But persecution remains a difficult thing to grasp, a harder thing to live out, and an even harder thing to approach like Jesus has commanded us. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. If there's a book or something to be read by C.S. Lewis, I'm usually in on it. This is one of my favorite quotes from Lewis. It says this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. See, what C.S. Lewis is reminding us of is that following Jesus isn't about emotional fulfillment, but rather a lifelong loyalty to something more beautiful than we deserve and certainly not anything we could obtain on our own. The gospel retains its beauty even in terrible moments like persecution. So let's take a deeper look at persecution, what it is, what it accomplishes, and what the rewards and promises are that come along with it. So what is persecution? Let's take a shot at defining it for a moment, if you will. 
Persecution is this. It is the attempt to silence the witness of a believer, a group of believers, or a church through negative and hostile means. Those means can take the form of threats, accusations, financial pressures, social pressures, legal actions, or even physical violence. These negative reactions toward the believer or believers is usually brought on by governments, those holding a different ideology or religion, societies, families, or even individuals themselves. And so that was a lot to throw at you. So let's just break that down for a minute. Here's the important things I want you to grasp from that. The first thing you need to know is that persecution is this. It's the attempt to silence witness. So it means that there's an attempt through hostile means to get those to stop living out or speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's done in a way, in a form that takes on various approaches that are hostile towards them. So it could be just a threat. It could be pressure brought to bear on them, either financially or through some other means, or it could uh, turn into physical violence. And then there's always some type of human agency or individual behind that. Could be a government, it could be an organization, it could be just an individual, but there's always someone behind them. So there's those three aspects to it. But in Matthew 5.10, Jesus doesn't leave us with just the term persecution. Jesus qualifies what he's saying about persecution by stating that it is only persecution when it is done for the sake of righteousness and when it occurs on his account. So what exactly does that mean? See, disciples of Jesus want to make much of Jesus. That's always true. And the proper motivation and mindset of a disciple is to bear witness to the life and work of Jesus Christ with the intent of making other disciples. So for the sake of righteousness means the disciple is both loyal to the cause and has the intent of following the king's marching orders, which are to make disciples of all nations. And this is what Jesus means when he says the motivation of his followers needs to be for the sake of righteousness and on his account. So I see things that happen in this country that are labeled as persecution, and I'm not convinced that's the case. For example, when believers choose to engage others on social media over political issues and get themselves into an online argument. Then the other party derides them for being believers because of their political convictions. And I have seen people and groups claim that this is an example of persecution in America. I don't agree, here's why. It doesn't match the criteria set forth by Jesus in Matthew 5. Are they being insulted? derided, put down for the sake of righteousness or for the sake of an American political party. The reality is more closely aligned with the fact that the individual got into an argument on social media, was mean-spirited in the process, and may not have done well in said argument. So in America, we've not done a good job of engaging the culture with the gospel. We've done a really good job of explaining what we are against, not necessarily what we believe to be true about Jesus. Now hear me. I know these things can come across as harsh two days before a national election. My point is not necessarily to talk about the current state of the American church as it relates to politics. My point is to say that not every insult thrown at Christians is persecution. Persecution occurs when people set out with the express purpose of bearing witness and making much about Jesus in front of people who don't happen to know him. And for their efforts, they are met with an attempt to silence them through some hostile means. Now that's persecution. So as we define persecution, as we've looked at it, how do we accept persecution? And we do that because it takes a different mindset. You see, seeing and living out persecution as blessing and flourishing takes this incredibly different mindset, this upside-down mindset, if you will. As stated in previous sermons, the kingdom of God requires us to approach life with that upside-down mindset. 
We spent a lot of time looking at the book of Colossians. And in chapter three, the first three verses in that chapter says this. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, here's our problem. We have to some degree try to domesticate Jesus with an American mindset. I'm guilty of it. I think you're guilty of it. We all do this to some degree. You want proof? Look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. How many times have you read our text today, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, and glossed right over it? I have. Why? I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about the implications of what it means. I don't want to know about the implications for me. I certainly don't want to think about the implications of what it might mean for my family, especially my children. And yet here is the reality of Scripture staring all of us in the face. If I'm going to bring my children up to love Jesus and to follow him in this life, it means that I must prepare them for the fact that they may experience persecution in their lifetime. It means that I must teach my children to live with an eternal kingdom mindset where sharing and living out the gospel is paramount. It is the priority in everything that we do. It means that I must teach my children to see persecution as a blessing and not a curse. It means that I must teach my children to see persecution as a win worth celebrating and not a crushing defeat to fear or to hide from. It means that I must teach my children that God sees them both as precious and indispensable and vital to the expansion of his kingdom. About a decade ago, I was responsible for securing some speakers for a church event. One of those speakers was a missionary in North Africa. He had a ministry where he worked with Muslims, ministered to Muslims. They ran a sports camp for Muslim youth where they would invite these children in, teach them sports skills and explain the gospel to them. He told me the story about these four kids that came from the same village, all Muslim. They were the best of friends. They hung out where you saw one, you would see the other three. They were indispensable. They were always together, never separated. And these boys ran around together all week. The last night of camp, they would build this huge bonfire where they would lay out the gospel explicitly to these Muslim kids. And they would say, they would say, listen, don't you dare, don't you dare follow Jesus unless you're serious about this. Because you're gonna go back to your place and you're gonna suffer greatly for this. So don't follow Jesus unless you're serious about it. And three of those four boys stepped forward that night and they took Jesus as their savior and Lord. Next day, they got on a bus, they went back to their village. As soon as they got back to their village, the fourth kid who had not come to know Christ as savior and Lord that night, he ratted the other three out to the rest of his village. He said, these three last night gave their lives to Jesus. As according to Muslim law, their fathers were responsible for disciplining. They took them to the middle of the village. They tied them to a post in the middle of the village. They took leather straps and they began to beat their backs, asking them to recant of this and to come back to the Muslim faith. And the three boys would not do it. There would be a period where they would beat them and then they would stop, give them a chance to recant of their faith in Jesus. And when they would not, the beatings would start again. This went on for some time. And finally, the fourth boy stepped forward and said, if Jesus means that much to them, I'll also give my life in this respect. 
not knowing what to do, not knowing the shock of that, everything just stopped. And then an older gentleman from the crowd stepped forward and he said, I also will give my life to Jesus Christ. Three ladies stepped forward from the crowd and said, I also will give my life to Jesus Christ. And before long, the entire village had given their life to Jesus Christ. As I was sitting there hearing this story and this missionary was explaining to this, he was explaining to me that over the course of the last year, 20,000 Muslims had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I was like, praise God, man, that's such a, it's such a beautiful and powerful thing. And I asked him, I said, how on earth are 20,000 Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you guys just have like incredible evangelists? Are you just really good at evangelism? Like what's, what's going on there? And the answer that he gave me was both shocking and it wasn't the answer I wanted to hear. He looked me in the eye and he said, no, it's persecution. They watch former Muslims who are now believers suffer greatly for the faith and they decide they want that as well. Here's my plea. Can we value and see mobilization in a different light, missions in a different light, that the possibility of persecution will always exist, it's always going to be there, that the need for discipleship, even in spite of persecution, will never go away until Jesus returns. And listen, folks, we are gonna send people to dangerous places in the world. That's part of the risk, and that's part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And that's something that we need to be about and not shy away from. So as we look at persecution, what purpose does it serve? And we talked a little bit about this, but first and foremost, it's biblical. It's both needed and it has not taken God by surprise. So I hope that gives you some degree of comfort in this matter. It's like God's not shocked by this that people are going to want to persecute us. In fact, he told us to expect that. I want to take a look at a passage from Philippians chapter 3. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking. And he's reminding us of some beautiful truths. I'm going to read verses 4 through 11. It says this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, catch this, a persecutor of the church. There was a time in Paul's life where he was the one doing the persecuting. Now he's on the receiving end of it. He goes on to say, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But in verse 7, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, meaning I count the good things in my life, the bad things in my life, everything in between. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't want to know that? I want to know the power of his resurrection. But he goes on, he says, and here's the part that gets glossed over so many times, and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, does any means possible include persecution? Absolutely. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so we see the Apostle Paul giving us clear indication that 
persecution, suffering, it is a biblical thing, it is an expected thing. And this is all part of the mystery of God's sovereignty. Why persecution is necessary and how it's used is completely up to God. But part of the way that he uses it is this. It's used to bear witness to Jesus and it's used to establish the church. I'm the executive director of an organization called AIM for India that works obviously in the nation of India. And I've uh, served in this capacity for a little over eight years. And I've had several opportunities to contemplate the meaning of persecution and to see firsthand what it does for the church. And I want to show you through a recent experience how persecution benefits the church in India. In India, this is in the nation of India. This is not every place on the face of the earth, but this is in India. This is the nation I know the most about in regards to this, and that's why I'm sharing it. But the government in place wants to eradicate all religions in India other than Hinduism. They have made it their stated purpose. All minority religions, meaning every other religion in India other than Hinduism, are seen as enemies of India, especially Islam. And every effort to eradicate Islam in the nation of India eventually rolls downhill to Christianity. Hindus who convert to Christianity are seen as traitors. They are seen as enemies of their state. Any Indian who takes baptism is seen as betraying their community. So baptism is essentially like placing a bullseye on the back of a believer. Last week, I had the, the beautiful opportunity to, to baptize my son right down here front and center in this church. It's a beautiful day for my family. But at no time did I fear for the life of my son or my own life in that. But in India, that is not the case. When you take baptism, it's like having a bullseye painted on to your back. After baptism, persecution takes many forms for Indians. Could mean physical violence. Could mean the loss of a job. It means being ostracized from their family, the loss of a home, an inability to conduct business or buy necessities at the market. And in some cases, even death. And I've seen all of this in my travels to India. But something incredible happened this year in the nation of India, and it happened all over the world. A pandemic hit the world. And in India, it hit in an incredibly difficult way. In March, as the pandemic broke out, the nation of India began what they called a lockdown, which means that every citizen had to go to their home and could not come out of their home. For the poorest in India... They are day wage laborers, meaning if they are stuck in their house, they cannot go to work. If they don't go to work, they don't get paid. If they don't get paid, they can't go to the market and buy food. And if they can't go to the market and buy food, it means they end up starving. And this is exactly what began to happen. Where the nation of India intended to protect its citizens from the virus, they ended up starving some of their most poor and disadvantaged in that. We run a school in India with 193 students and we began to receive word that our students and their families were beginning to starve. And so we had to act fast. And so we purchased rice. And we began to distribute it to our families. And as that happened, we began to get word that also our believers were starving. And so we've had a hand in planning over 312 churches in the nation of India since 2012. We estimate that in those churches, there are around 1,200 believers. And in, over the course of a week, 100 of them died from starvation. It was a hard thing to accept, but we were trying to rally to their cause and to help them out. And so we got rice to every church and to every pastor. He began to distribute it uh, to the people who were in the most dire of needs in every 
particular church in that setting, and then something incredible happened. As our believers began to take the rice home with them, and you have to understand this is a lifeline. This rice may not be coming again. It may be the only thing that keeps them alive. And as they carried this to their house, rather than hoarding this for their own families, they began to share it with their neighbors. One of the things you have to understand is as they shared it with their neighbors, their neighbors are the ones who are persecuting them. They're not sharing it with people that they have block parties with. They're sharing it with people who would ridicule them, revile them, hold things against them for the sake of righteousness. And in that, as they were going about and doing that in that moment, God did an incredible thing, a thing that only God can do. I have three stories I want to share with you. Jamin shared these a few months back. You may have heard those. There was a lady who was 53 years old, mother, a wife, her husband being Hindu. He would beat her on a regular basis for her Christian faith. And rather than hold that against him, she prepared a plate of rice for him and brought that rice to him, which was a lifeline. He fell at her feet that night. He begged for her forgiveness, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. A 53-year-old widow who was, had several disabilities, one of those being that she was mute. She was cast out of her village, thrown out of her village. And that night, as she brought rice back to her place, rather than hoarding it, she began to share it with the people who kicked her out of the village. The next morning, they came to her, and they had one question. How can you do this? After we treated you the way we did, how could you love us in this way? And she could not speak, so she called for her daughter-in-law to come. Her daughter-in-law came, and they read from the Gospel of John. And as tears streamed down her face, these people fell at her feet, begged her forgiveness, and they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's also the story of a 70-year-old widower whose daughter and husband had thrown him out of his own home because he was a believer. And there he was on their front porch with a plate of rice, willing to share it with their family. And they broke down, they restored their relationship, came to faith, and they go to church with him now. A little over a month ago, in the month of September, 449 believers were baptized across 312 churches because of the efforts of believers to reach out to those people who had persecuted them. So persecution is used in a mysterious way by God to establish his church. And sometimes it's used by God in a way to expand the kingdom of God like nothing else can. And so it's biblical, necessary, it's used to expand the church and be able to basically spread the gospel, but also something else that's true about it, it's evil. It really is. It's evil and it's temporal. Persecution is an evil thing. It's an attempt by satanic, demonic forces to either intimidate believers into silence or to end them altogether. But I want you to understand something. The enemy is not the human agency carrying out the persecution. It is not the persecutor. It is what lies behind that. It is the mindset and the spiritual deception in that individual's life that is the enemy. Persecution is definitely spiritual warfare. And as such, it should be something that garners a lot of prayer. I want to I encourage you guys to do something in this moment. There are brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who are being persecuted. And I don't want you to forget them. And I want you to pray for them. And I want you to pray not that persecution would end, but that they would be courageous in the midst of it. 
and that they would be a witness to Jesus Christ because of it. But praise be to Jesus, that persecution, while it is something evil, it is also something that will end when Jesus returns to set everything straight and everything right. And so this brings us to the last consideration. Persecution, what is the blessing in persecution? Let's start with our text, Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You see, an eternal mindset, a kingdom mindset, sees the prize at the end of this life, and that prize is Jesus Christ. And it's not just Jesus himself, but it's what he brings with him, and he brings with him life. And it's not just life, but he brings life eternal. And that is a beautiful thing, and we should always remember that as the prize set before us. And this means our entire orientation in life is pointed towards Jesus and pointed towards his kingdom, even if that orientation means that we pay a terrible price for it. Listen, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he said this. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What he's saying is like, everything you go through in this life, every time you pay the price for me, every time you go through something horrible, it will not even compare to what waits for you. It's not even close to being able to celebrate in the presence of King Jesus for all of eternity. See, the persecution that I've experienced has been minor and incidental at best in the nation of India. But I know others who've been through various and severe forms of persecution across most of their lives. And so this week, as I was preparing for the sermon, I reached out to them and I just asked if they wouldn't mind sharing their experiences with me and just sharing in a, in a personal way what that was like. And so from the people that I've spoken with who've suffered physical persecution and also other forms, there are kind of three things just to kind of condense it down to what they had to share with me. One is on a personal level, persecution, especially severe forms of it, draws them closer to Christ like nothing else can. They said in that moment when you are helpless, when you are the victim, when it is inevitable that something is about to happen and that something is terrible, the reality is that Jesus is all there is. And that realization is a gift in that moment. It will draw you to Christ like nothing else can. They said, after the incident was over and that they had survived it, it created in them a desire to go to the Heavenly Father and to pray. It created this desire to pray and just relish the presence of God, to thank Him for preserving their lives and to thank Him for counting them worthy to suffer. And then after the fact, the reflection, as they looked back on it, they realized, man, this puts them in great company. Jesus said, hey, it happened to the prophets before you. It happened to the disciples and the apostles, and it definitely happened to Jesus. And if it happens to you, it puts you in good company. And so the, assur the assurance is that there's a joy that comes with suffering. As weird as that sounds, as backwards as that sounds, it's true. There's a peace that comes over people knowing that they've been counted worthy to share in the suffering of Jesus. And in the end, the person who experiences persecution has to understand a couple of things. One, they've counted the cost of what it means to take up their cross. They've exhibited a loyalty to Jesus that he most certainly has earned. It is recognition by the persecuted of who Jesus is in light of who they are. In short, Jesus is worthy and he is most definitely worth it. The other thing is that maybe more important, they've understood the value of Jesus. That even in the midst of the persecution being enacted upon them, they see Jesus as the treasure hidden in the field. 
the treasure that they hid and went and sold all that they had to be able to purchase. And as difficult as this is for us to grasp, it is also a beautiful, beautiful thing. While understanding the cost of following Jesus and the value of Jesus certainly helps to cognitively think through persecution, it's the reality of this thing that makes it so difficult to live out. Persecution challenges the church in ways that few things do. The temptation will be to continue to gloss over this part of the Bible, to pretend that when Jesus called us to share in his sufferings, that, the, that what was really meant was for other people in other parts of the world. And maybe we don't even want to go there, to think that there are people who suffer in horrible ways. But in the right side up view of the world, if you will, the normal view of the world, persecution seems so wrong. It seems so foreign to the life we desire. You know that one, the life of comfort and ease where Jesus doesn't demand very much of me and yet I still get to spend eternity with him. But to buy into this view is to buy into the lie, the lie of the enemy. And the Bible is clear and Jesus has made it plain that the flourishing life will include suffering and that suffering could come in the form of persecution. Listen to me, that doesn't mean that I go looking for persecution, right? It doesn't mean that I go out and I try to antagonize people into persecuting me. Let's use a little common sense, okay? It's not something that we go sign up for, but Jesus told us we would suffer. It does mean that I live knowing that the cost of following Jesus could come in the form of persecution. So my prayer is that God would raise up people from this place, to be sent across the metroplex, across the state and nation, and even to the far reaches of the earth to bear witness of Jesus' greatness. That prayer includes those people being sent to places that would be considered closed to the gospel, in some circles even dangerous places to go, and that God would use those people to expand his kingdom in a glorious way. And before you shut off the possibility that that person might be you, I would reconsider that. I pray that you would approach God with open hands and say, my life is your life, Lord. Wherever you send, I will go. And if God sends us there, then God will provide a way for us to be able to share the gospel. The beauty of it is, is that even persecution, while it is difficult, it leads to some really beautiful things. I hope that you've heard this with the right ears and that your heart has an understanding for persecution. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the beauty of your gospel. I thank you for how beautiful you are, for how worthy you are, just how incredible you are. That even in the midst of really, really difficult things, you could still use those horrible and difficult things to make something beautiful of it. Lord, I pray for those around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the midst of persecution. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you give them the courage to hold fast. And I also pray the same for us if that day comes, that we would hold fast to you and who you are. Lord, I pray for our church. I'm so grateful for it. I thank you for taking us where you're taking us. I pray all this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen.